Take your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10, be in verses 17 through 31. We are still in Robert's Preaching Lab 2 sermons. So this text, last go around we did Old Testament, now we're all preaching from texts in the book of Mark. So I'll, I'll give a bit of explanation as to why this passage. We were asked to fill out a spreadsheet listing the texts and a summary heading for what the text was. And I saw Jesus and the rich young man and I thought, I, I, I find that. Interaction quite intriguing. It's probably one of my top five interactions between Jesus and another human. So I signed up for it, and as I looked at it closer, I realized, oh, this is a money passage. (laughs) So, you know, my first sermon at Christ Ridge was a women passage. (laughs) Now one of my last is going to be a money passage. So the the session did not put me up to this. They did not say, well, Robert, you, you preach a money sermon, and then, you know... You can take the flack for that, so that, that, that is not what's happening, although maybe I should say to the session, you're welcome if this increases the tithes and offerings, I, I don't know, we'll see. Anyway, Mark 10, we'll begin in verse 17, this is God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great riches. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let's ask him for his blessing. Father, you say in your word, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Lord, likewise, we can also say that unless you, O Lord, open ears, loosen tongues, those who hear and speak do so in vain as well. 
Lord, if we are on your own, we are in trouble, but we trust that you have uh, been pleased to come and meet with us by your Spirit, and we pray that your Spirit would continue to be with us now. Give illumination, give understanding, for we desire to know your Word, and we might believe it, love it, and live it. Help us to do this, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just a few minutes ago, we read the end of 2 Samuel about David building an altar to the Lord. I actually spent some time reading through Samuel. I'm studying it in one of my Bible classes. But one thing I learned about the book of Samuel, it was written as one book and it was divided up later. One of the, the writer's main goals was to set forward David as the kind of king that Israel needed in the future. Which is surprising, you know, David has his flaws put on display in 2 Samuel. We've even seen that as we've studied it this past month or two. But ultimately, one reason Samuel was written was to set forth David as the kind of king that Israel needed. If that's the case, we should pay especially attention to how the book ends. And I don't know if you caught this when we read the passage a minute ago, but David's last words recorded in Samuel were, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That cost me nothing. Now, he was saying that in response to a man who just offered up everything to David. You know, imagine if wealthy benefactor came to Michael. I want to give you 500 grand for your new building. No, I think we need to feel the cost ourselves. We don't need your gift. Well, we don't want to build a building that costs us nothing. It's a high standard to strive for, isn't it? You look at that last line of Samuel, and there's really two ways to look at it. One, you can read David's last words, I will not build an altar to the Lord that cost me nothing, and say, well, David, what a great man. You know, what a great king, what a pious king, man after God's own heart David was. You can respond that way, or you can look at those words and say, does God want me to be that way? Does God want that kind of sacrificial giving to me? Does God want that kind of a total abandonment of love of riches? Does God want us too to give to the Lord in a costly way? We fast forward a bit through biblical history. The Apostle Paul had a thing or two to say about the love of money as well. First Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the problem that we have to deal with. It's not central. And on the other hand, the love of money proves to be a great snare to us in our Christian lives. And for the young man that comes to Jesus, it was ultimately catastrophic to him spiritually. Our passage condemns and cautions against the love of money. And we, more than just about any other people in the world, need to hear that, I think, right? Very clearly, God is saying to us and to these, in these verses, and we need to hear this, that because the love of money is parasitic to Christian discipleship, Christ's disciples must radically reject the love of money. And we'll deal with this question of the, the perilous love of money under several headings. First, we'll look at the offer that Jesus makes, an offer made to a lover of money. Then we'll look at a warning, a warning made by Christ. Third, we'll look at a promise that Christ makes. Fourth, a reminder. So offer, warning, promise, reminder. 
Okay, first the offer in our text. Look at this interaction Jesus has with this young man. I think we need to give him some credit. This man, based on our introduction to him, seems to be one of the best candidates for discipleship we have come across in the book of Mark, if we had read through and seen it. Obviously, he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. And then he calls him something. You know, he calls Jesus good teacher. Now, I think in our day, you know, we, we, we live in a pluralistic world where a lot of people believe a lot of different things. And everyone says, Jesus is a good teacher. And they don't mean anything by it. And we want to push back and say, no, no, no. Jesus is more than a good teacher. He's, he's God. He's Savior. He's Lord. But in the Gospel of Mark, pretty much everyone called Jesus a teacher. It was his job. He was a rabbi. And yet this man went a step further and called him good teacher. In my studies, that is a very rare thing to call any rabbi a good teacher, a good rabbi. And yet this man gives him that title. The rich young man has a tremendous respect for Jesus. And then the young man asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think he's trying to trick Jesus. He's not being like the Pharisees who come up and try to just pose these hypothetical questions to Jesus to see what he says and try to capture it in his words. No, he's, he's very sincere. This man is desperate to know how to get eternal life. And he believes Jesus can show him the way. Jesus gives an answer in verse 18. And, and let's be honest, it's really confusing. What must I do to be saved? Jesus says, why do you call me good? What? <laughs> like, tell him the answer, Jesus. Just say, hey, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. You're in your household. But Jesus doesn't say that. He decides to go the other way. Jesus gives an answer that's on the face of us very Jewish. He says, you know the commandments, and he lists them off. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, etc. What is Jesus doing here? I think Jesus is on to this. You know, this man comes across, like I said a minute ago, as one of the most devout, pious, Jesus-honoring people we have come across in the book of Mark, if we read straight through. This man is a lot closer to who Jesus is than a lot of other people that interact with Jesus. But I wonder if Jesus sensed this reality that sometimes the people who come across as the most religious often believe themselves to be the most religious. And in verse 19, we get that confirmation. Young man says, All these I have kept from my youth. Now, I used to read that passage, and I would imagine, you know, because at this point, Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount, where one of the core messages was, if you think you can keep the commandments of God, you don't have a chance, right? You hate someone in your heart, you're a murderer, you lust, you're an adulterer, you have no chance at keeping the commandments of God perfectly. And I would imagine, you know, maybe a couple of his disciples are standing off to the side, maybe John nudges James and says, watch Jesus rip into this guy, you know. <laughs> because he comes across as really arrogant, really prideful. Uh, I don't think the young man was coming across as a prideful man, though. Because remember how he approached Jesus. He ran to him, he knelt to him, he honored him. And he asked him an honest question, what must I do to be saved? 
And when Jesus presses him, he says he has kept all these commandments from his youth. And maybe externally he had, right? Maybe he never killed someone, he never committed adultery, never flat out defrauded someone. Maybe he had really lived his life by the book. But clearly he knew that wasn't enough, right? He knew he needed something more, and that's what brought this rich young man to Jesus. He knew keeping the commandments was not enough to get him eternal life. He's really close. He's really close. And in verse 21, Jesus gives another confusing response. Before that, I want to note something that's quite amazing. Jesus looks at this man and loved him. Maybe that's a a difficult thing to take in as Presbyterians who believe in election and the fact that the Lord is not chosen in his sovereignty to show his steadfast love and redemption to all men. And so you wonder, well, what is the heart of Jesus towards those who do not believe? Because we don't have any indication that this man ever believed. He's not recorded as demonstrating saving faith. He's not recorded as repenting. We have no reason to think he's in heaven, and yet Jesus still loved him. The heart of Christ was full of love to all men, if he was to this man. We have permission to do the same. And so Jesus responds to the young man, Sell all you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the man's response is terrifying. He goes away disheartened. He was willing physically to bow the knee to Jesus. He was willing to show Jesus tremendous admiration and respect. But when it came to following Jesus at the cost of his money, that he couldn't do. Jesus had pinned this guy down and it's a sobering lesson to take to heart, right? You can be really close to true discipleship, at least by appearances. You could be so close, you can have so much of your life in order, and you can come across as being very religious, and one attachment can keep you from true discipleship. One attachment can derail you completely spiritually. Well, after refusing Jesus' offer to follow him, Jesus turns the young man's case into a teaching moment for his disciples, and that leads to our second point. Next, Jesus gives a warning to potential lovers of money. There's a way to teach this passage where you kind of maybe neutralize the main point. It's calling out money and we can take the passage and make it about something else. But let's call a spade a spade, right? The temptation to love and serve money is not simply one among many. It is uniquely alluring. It's uniquely enticing. I want you to notice a little nuance in what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 23. He calls out wealth in particular. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth is a particular problem. But then verse 24, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom is hard, period. But then... Look again in verse 25. Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So entering the kingdom of God is really, really hard, period. But especially so if you have money. 
Did you notice that twice the disciples are shocked by this? Verse 24, they are amazed by his words. Verse 26 says, they were exceedingly astonished and said, then who can be saved? And why would they be astonished? Why would they be amazed? Why would that be shocking to them that rich people are going to have a tougher time being saved? You know, when Jesus describes the rich, we probably think of someone like Mr. Scrooge. You know, greedy, no good miser, grunt. Miser won't lift a finger to help anyone, won't drop a dime in the Salvation Army bucket. When the Girl Scout comes to ring his doorbell to sell him cookies, he won't answer. Can't be bothered to give it all. I think it's more complicated than that, though. By the time Jesus had begun his ministry, Israel had very much lost its way as a whole from the grace-based theology of the Old Testament. And it had degraded into works righteousness. And in Judaism, how do you get works righteousness? Well, you give lots of sacrifices and you give lots of offerings and the more the better. And how do you, how are you able to give lots of offerings and sacrifices? Having money helps for that. Money helps you accrue merit to perform religious rituals with the hope that God will accept you. So the rich were considered maybe to have a leg up on everyone else in that regard. And Jesus here is totally debunking that whole system of belief right there. Because getting to heaven is not just about who can give the most offerings and sacrifices. It's not about merit. It's not about earning merit. But if that's the case, then what about the rich? Well, Jesus says they're in particular danger. That's his point in verse 25. Why did Jesus choose the word picture that he does? I've never seen a camel, I don't think. Might have seen one in my college days, but my memory is hazy. But I have, again, I have it on good authority that camels were actually the biggest animals in Palestine at that time. No bigger animals than a camel. I do know from experience that the eye of the needle is the smallest hole in the world, so do not ask me to do any sewing for you. (laughs) Biggest animal through the smallest hole... You get Jesus' point? I think so. I think to some degree we should feel the news tightening a little bit right now. And you know, many of us know the rest of the story. We know the rest of Scripture says that wealth in itself is not a bad thing, right? We we know uh, Abraham was the father of the faithful. He had great wealth. We know the Apostle Paul in his letters does not condemn wealth outright, but he simply instructs uh, the rich to be ready to be generous and not to be haughty. But, But he doesn't charge them to give all they have to the poor. That, that, uh, we're not required to do that in the New Testament, but on the other hand, Jesus' words should give us pause. Is money getting the way of you following Jesus in wholehearted discipleship? And that's our warning. Jesus warns against the pitfall that wealth can be done spiritually either by keeping us out of the kingdom of God, if we let it rule our lives, But Jesus then follows with third, a great promise. And the disciples ask him very pointedly, then who can be saved if not the rich, right? Again, Jesus looks at them and says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And there might have been some hearing Jesus who didn't really understand who Jesus was, who didn't find that promise very assuring, right? Maybe they ask themselves, if I can't save myself, who can I trust? Well, trust Jesus because he is not just man, but he is God. 
The Lord Jesus did the impossible for our salvation. He kept the whole law of God as a man. That was an impossible thing for one angle, but because he was God and had the aid of the Holy Spirit, that is exactly what he came down from heaven to do, and that is what he did. And everything Jesus did, his whole work of redemption, taking on human nature, being born of a woman, being born under the law, fulfilling the law, you realize all that Jesus did as a poor man. Why didn't Jesus come and, and make atonement in 21st century South Carolina? You know, he would have had a, a nice car, maybe, you know, could have had health care. No, he didn't do that. Jesus traveled an infinitely long journey to become man, but he went beyond that and became a poor man. Jesus knew homelessness. Jesus probably had days where he preached and he did not know where his dinner would come from. Might have been days where Jesus preached and he lost his voice and he wasn't able to access water to parch his throat. That is the life his father willed for him to live and that is the life that Jesus did live. Total rejection of love and dependence on money and the comfort that money can give. With man it is impossible, but not with God, but all things are possible with God. I wonder, have you ever thought to apply that statement to your own life? Have you ever thought about the fact that as far as just being a Christian goes, that is an impossible thing from just a human standpoint? Some of us, if we were born in a Christian home, think back on our testimonies and it all seems quite natural. You know, we born to Christian parents, we're taught about the Lord Jesus and we profess belief at an early age. It seems so natural. Cornelius Van Til is a 20th century Dutch theologian. He, he wrote a phenomenal book called Why I Believe in God, a little short read. It, very influential to me in college and I remember him saying at one point, you know, ultimately the reason I believe in God is because my parents raised me to believe in God. Eh. <laughs> okay. That's rather forthright. That's not very impressive, but okay. You know, I can relate to that. I, I was discipled by my parents from the cradle. I, I professed faith in Christ at a young age. And from a human standpoint, it seemed natural. But I know that if I was left to myself, it would not have gone that way. And I can think back on myself and my own personality and my own tendencies towards sin. And I can imagine if I had been left to myself, maybe I would be a philosophy professor or a history professor at a secular university and teaching false worldviews and taking a lot of people to hell with me. And, and that could have been what had happened to me if God had not, by his grace, intervened and taken my heart and turned it toward himself. And if you believe in Jesus, God did the impossible in saving you too. Have you, do you think about that? The Lord Jesus took your heart as well, which was naturally set against him. And he reined it in. That is only possible with him. I wonder if we spent more time reflecting on that basic fact. That I, that you, a sinner with a wicked heart, have been brought to submission to Christ. How would that impact the way that we even tackle the week-to-week challenges and hills that we all have to climb? I don't know what you have to face this upcoming week. Maybe it feels impossible to take on, right? What if every now and again, eating breakfast, brushing your teeth whenever you stopped, you put the week's activities on pause and you reminded yourself, God has kept me breathing, God has kept me believing, 
And those are two impossible things without him. And if he's done those things for me, he will surely take care of the rest. I want to share one practical way I've seen this play out even in our own body. You know, when you preach on a money passage, a question I think probably all preachers ask is, how much pressure can I exert on the people to kind of squeeze them a little bit to make them give and still get away with it, right? Maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. Well, it just so happened I actually received the financial statement for the month a few days ago, and I did some numbers crunching. And I won't say the assumptions because they're probably wrong, and Tom will have to correct me. But based on my findings, this church is giving a lot more than the average 10% tithe, right? To go above and beyond in what you give with man is impossible, but God is doing that in our church. He is cultivating in us a spirit of a generosity and a willingness to give above and beyond what would be the bare minimum. Praise God, he's doing impossible things in our body. So we have this great promise to hang on to. All things are possible with God. And finally, we see forth uh, a reminder. Have you ever had a conversation with a friend and you had to say something kind of stern and maybe a little sharp? And you said that thing and you followed it up with something encouraging but when you said the thing that was encouraging, your friend was still hung up on the harsh thing, and they wouldn't hear the encouragement. I think that's kind of happening with Peter right now. Seems that Peter is still hung up about Jesus' warning about wealth, and he didn't really take in Jesus' great promise. Uh, and Peter raises a fair point. Hey, what about all of us who did forsake our wealth, right? Peter, we think, was a, a very successful fisherman. Maybe had a, a fisherman business where he was doing okay for himself, and he left that behind to follow Jesus. What about those who do reject the love of money and have sought to, by the Spirit, uh, dedicate even their resources to the kingdom of God? I know for many of you that resonates, right? I know that a lot of you have given up a lot to serve Christ. I know many of you have forsaken a great deal of income and may be pursuing another line of work. Uh, I know many of you have forsaken the possibility of early retirement. You've forsaken many other creature comforts that you could have had by doing something else. And you gave it up because you were determined that the Lord should have the sum totality of your life, money included. I would encourage you, though, to consider the temptation, the possibility that a life of sacrifice can, in fact, gnaw on you if you're not careful. And after many years of deferring wealth, deferring security, deferring comfort... You start to wonder, am I hanging by a thread here? I know the Lord will save me and take me to heaven, but what about in the meantime? Is he going to hang me out to dry? Is he going to provide? And that's where you need to hear Jesus' reminder in verses 29 through 31. And it's this amazing kind of two-part reality that we see in this reminder. On the one hand, the disciples are called to give up everything. There is nothing that Jesus does not require you to lay on the table to follow him discipleship that he might take away. Look at what he says. House, siblings, parents, children. Jesus is asking for a lot. Jesus requires that we forsake, cede to his authority all things in our life. But there is the second aspect too, and it's an astonishingly high return. It says a hundredfold is what we will receive. And we hear that and we think a hundredfold, okay, sure, heaven will be a great place. Looking forward to heaven. No, that's not what he says. 
Verse 30, the the hundredfold return is now in this time, this life. We get a hundredfold return. What is this return? It's the church. The return is the family of God. The return is the reality that when we lay down our lives, we lay down our stuff, our wealth, we lay down our resources, we get all of that back and more just by being in the family of God. When by God's grace we lay down our possessions, our money, our everything to follow Jesus, we find we receive something far greater in the, king, in the church of God, the kingdom of God. I think we're always in danger of missing this reality, you know, of getting bogged down in the struggles and getting bogged down in the grind of giving a lot to the Lord and giving a lot to the Lord and not stopping to look up and see what he's given you, you know. Notice where Jesus puts the focus. What's the focus of the reminder? Jesus does discuss receiving houses and lands and those are good things. i very thankful that God has provided for me, you know, financially through my own time in seminary. And I know we could all share stories of how God has time and again met financial needs and needs of resources. And, and, and we're so thankful for that, I know. But the main reward is the people. The great return on investing in the kingdom of God is the people of God. That's an important thing for us to keep in mind, even as, you know, I've been praying for a dry spring, and you probably have been too, that we can finally get the foundation down and start building, you know? We're waiting for that. I know that many of you have given a lot of money to see that building go up, and and once you know that God has taken notice, and the well done, my good and faithful servant, is coming. But see to it that you keep in mind what the main return is on that investment in that building. The return is people we have never met. The return is people we might not have wanted to meet from a certain standpoint because they don't look like us. They don't have our interests. They don't, from a human point of view, they're not the type of people we might have been friends with. But if by God's grace he's pleased to fill our new building with believers of God, they are our return. they too have renounced their lives to follow Jesus those who join us one day are to our family that is our reward more family to come a hundredfold return for those who leave everything to follow Jesus let's ask him to give us the strength to persevere to that end father what a a challenge what a challenge to our American ears We as a church, you have blessed us so richly financially and monetarily just by being Americans. Father, we we pray for our brothers and sisters in other places who are living from day to day that don't know where their next meal will come from. Father, would you sustain them in their faith and provide for their needs? For us and for this church, would you enable us to reject the love of money? That we would not esteem the comforts of money, the pleasures of money to be something that we cannot lay down at your feet to follow you. Father, we thank you that with man this is impossible, but you have made it possible. You have made it actual through the Lord Jesus, and we look to him now. Take our life, let it be, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.